0: my brothers and sisters, today I'd like to kind of bring before our minds and our considerations the beauty, the importance of the practice of praying for the dead, which is what this Mass is all about. Praying for the dead is a very ancient Jewish custom. It started, as far as we know, historically hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, and it continued on afterwards, all throughout the early Christian era. And as time went on, the church, faced with various questions and quandaries, articulated, began to articulate and make more precise and clarify uh, the theological reasoning behind the, the whole practice. The practice was there. It's always been there. Very, very important, time-honored practice to pray for the dead. And I think one of the ways to help us understand this practice is to Make, make an assertion, I think, that is very, uh you know, if I have my thumb on the pulse of current cultural trends and how people think, uh, this statement would be very counter-cultural. And that is that love, and I'm going to use the word punishment, okay, not very popular, but love and punishment are not mutually exclusive, okay? So the kind of, perfect paradigm within within which to understand that is to think of parenting, okay? Parenting, right? Parents absolutely love their children, but yet there's correction, there's chastisement, even the word punishment, okay? Even the word punishment. So if you take that word punishment and you put it within a parental context, context of a relationship of love between a parent and a child, kind of takes the sting out of it. But if I'm not mistaken, that word punishment has got a real sting for many people today. And uh, so I think well, why is that? Well I don't I don't really know, but I think one of the ways that we can understand that is we we tend to use the paradigm of a relationship between a therapist and a patient in a in a psycho with a psychological counseling or therapy as the kind of the main uh uh, category within which we sort of conceive of almost everything. And I don't doubt that uh using and, and if you think about that relationship between the therapist and the patient, there isn't any punishment involved. <laughs> right? uh, you know, any any therapist that would punish their patient would be considered a really bad therapist. They would get fired. They probably get arrested or something, you know? Uh the 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 role of the therapist is to basically help the person be honest with themselves. That's sort of what it is. So the only person correcting you is you. All right. There's no external authority figure that's correcting you. It's just you. All right. And so that's what a good therapist does. And I don't doubt that probably many parenting methods would be improved by adopting some sort of methodologies from therapy. Nonetheless, in the last analysis, these are two different things, and a parent cannot raise their child like a therapist, <laughs> okay? I mean, every once in a while, there's just got to be flat-out correction, okay? And uh, the New Testament says this as well in the, in the Epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, the author says very clearly that God chastises every son that he accepts, every child of his that he recognizes as, as his own. There's going to be some kind of correction and punishment. Involved, okay. And so that's a, a very clear teaching of the New Testament, and it's borne out throughout the entire history of the Old Testament. All right. So today, the only scripture passage I'm going to focus on from our readings is our first reading from Isaiah. And there's a lot of neat things going on in here. Okay. So the prophet says, on this mountain, what is the mountain that he's referring to on this mountain. Okay. What mountain? On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will provide for all peoples. Now, our passage omits two or three different lines that go on to describe a feast involving wine. Okay. So, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will provide a, a feast involving wine for all all peoples. Not just the Jewish people, but all peoples. On this mountain, he will destroy the veil that veils all peoples, he'll destroy death. Okay? And God will wipe away the tears from all faces. Then it goes on and it says, the reproach of his people, he will remove from the whole earth. And uh, then it describes the end of the, in the end of our passage, the people of God are rejoicing because they're able to see God. Now, as all prophetic writings um as it's, as it's true for all prophetic writings, what they do is they take salvation history and they telescope it. Okay, So there's all of these different events that take place all across salvation history. There's all the different dealings of God with the Old Testament people and with Jerusalem and Israel. And then you have Jesus' birth and then you have his death on the cross. And then you have his resurrection, and then you have the day of Pentecost, and then you have the age of the church, and then you have the general resurrection, and then you have the consummation of all things when the chosen people of God are beholding God face to face. And what the prophets do is they take that entire lineage of events and they telescope it, they collapse it into a certain kind of package, so it's almost hard to kind of disentangle all of those different events. Like they appear all together on stage as one. All right, it's almost like as if you were to think of a a mountain range, okay, and so you can delineate the different mountains if you view it from a particular perspective. But then when you get from another perspective, all the mountains seem to collapse, and you can hardly tell the difference. You just see their little peaks like this, all right, whereas if you view it like that, they spread out, okay, and they become distinct. But then when you view it in a foreshortened manner, they kind of, they all look like this. It's kind of hard to differentiate them. That's what the prophets do. They foreshorten salvation history. So consequently, we've got a lot of things going on right here. What's the mountain that's being spoken about? Well, I think it's at least two. It's Mount Calvary. It's the mountain on which Jesus suffered and died for our sins. It's also Mount Zion, which is the chief mountain upon which Jerusalem is built, which becomes a symbol for the church. Okay, so the church is being spoken about. And Mount Calvary, where Christ suffered, is being spoken about, and it's especially at the cross that death was overcome completely and finally, once for all. And then all of suffering is taken away as well, too, because all the tears are dried from the eyes too. So that's now we're looking at the final consummation of everything, especially because the people of God are beholding face to face uh beholding God face to face. That's the beatific vision, that's our ultimate destiny. So you see, this passage encompasses a whole ton of things going on uh, together in salvation history. But there's one more element that it, that it includes that's very important. It's pertinent to what I spoke about before, about punishments and love. Okay, And that is, it says, the reproach of his people he will remove. Okay, And so what we see in the Old Testament is that the Old Testament people, because of their sins, God allowed bad things to happen to them. There was punishment. They were exiled. The northern kingdom in particular was exiled from the Holy Land to Assyria. And God allowed the Assyrians to come in and overcome them. So all of these bad things happened. And the people saw those negative things happening to them as correction from their loving father. And they really got the message. And they became very penitent. Okay? And uh, so here they are in a posture... Of sorrow and penitence for their sins having, having accepted the correction that has come to them from their loving God and then finally God says okay the period of correction has been has come to an end and now there's a full restoration and all suffering is gone all tears are wiped from your eyes okay so but we have love and correction coexisting at the same time in Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned do you think God didn't forgive them he forgave them okay But yet, he exiled them from the garden, all right? And they had to do, it was a period of penance, essentially, okay? You shall labor over the ground with the sweat of your brow, okay? And the women will experience pain and childbirth. So there's these kinds of negative things that take place, and yet at the same time, God has forgiven them. The great example is Moses and Aaron. Aaron, what was the big sin that he did? He was involved with the sin of the golden calf, right? And so God says, I forgive you, but I'm going to punish you by not allowing you to go into the Holy Lands. So you'll never see it. And he did the same thing with Moses, even. Moses, one of the greatest prophets who ever lived, as close to God as you could possibly imagine, because Moses lost his temper at the people of God, all right, and didn't follow out God's commands, he said, okay, I'm not going to allow you to go into the Holy Land. I'm going to bring you up on Mount Nebo, allow you to see it with your eyes, but you're not going to be allowed to go in there because you did not honor my commandments. You didn't follow my instructions in ministering to my people. All right. So Moses certainly died in God's friendship and in his love. And yet there was some kind of punishment involved. OK, so all we have to do is kind of, you know, the, the analogy I like to give is uh, a parent. OK, so so imagine this. OK, Johnny is growing up. And uh, he gets his license. He's 16 years old. Okay, and he can drive, but he doesn't have his own car. All right, and so dad lets him drive, lets Johnny drive his car. Well, Johnny, at one point in the course of the school year, is letting his grade slip big time. All right, and dad says, okay, this party you want to go to on the upcoming weekend? No, no, no. Okay, you're staying home and you're doing your homework, and you're getting your work done because your grades are slipping, and you're going to fail. And so this is my correction for you. Well, Johnny is mad at Dad. Dad must not love me, right? Right? And so he says, forget about Dad. I'm going to go out to this party anyway. So he takes Dad's keys when Dad's asleep, and he gets the car, and he gets on the road, and he goes to the party, and he has something to drink. He has a lot to drink. Okay, and he drives back, and he gets into a big accident, and he absolutely totals the car and ends up in the hospital. He feels like the biggest, but he's alive, thank God, right? He feels like the biggest jerk that's ever walked the face of this earth, and so here he is in the hospital, okay, convalescing, and his dad comes in, and he says, Dad, I am really, in tears, I am really, really sorry, and he means it. Now, do you think his dad forgives him? Absolutely. Do you think his dad loves him? Absolutely. you think his dad is going to let him just get away with that whole stunt and not pay for the car that he destroyed? No, no. Johnny's still got to pay for it. You see, you see how love and forgiveness and then correction or punishment even can coexist together? And so in our dealing, in God's dealings with the people of God throughout all of salvation history, and it, with his dealings with us as individuals, he can love and he can forgive us when, when we are repentant. And yet still there's a process of correction that can take place. Now what happens if this Johnny hasn't paid off the debt that he owes to dad before he dies? Right? What happens? Well, you think he's not going to continue to pay off that debt after death? He's going to do it. Okay? He's still got something to atone for. Okay? And so there's this whole process after death. Uh, very often, okay, of paying off one's debt, one's temporal debt that they owe to God. And that's what we, what the church refers to traditionally as purgatory. Okay. And that explains why we pray for the dead. We believe that in essence, we're helping this Johnny or whoever Johnny pay off that debt that he owes to God through our prayers and most especially through the holy sacrifice of the Mass, okay? And so we go back to that first reading, on this mountain, the Lord will provide for all peoples, and he will wipe away the tears from all faces, and he will overcome and destroy death. It's a reference to Mount Calvary, but yet at the same time, it's a reference to the Mass because of that illusion of wine and feasts, okay? And so we see that the Mass is a representation of the full value of Mount Calvary, and it, when we offer Mass for the dead, we're applying that full value of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. We're applying it for the benefit of that person, that Johnny, who's still paying off the debt to Dad. It's a beautiful thing, my brothers and sisters, that we do. It's an act of charity for our brothers and sisters who have gone before us. And if we ever find ourselves in that situation, you better believe we'd want other people who are on earth to be praying for us. We wouldn't want them to say, oh, for sure, Father Dave is in heaven. He's such a good guy. How could he possibly have any debt to pay off? You don't know that. You don't know that. Okay? So, we should never preempt preempt the canonization of our parents or our brothers and sisters. We should always... Uh, In great humility and gratitude to God and out of charity, pray for them and offer the holy sacrifice of the Mass for them. And that's what we do today on All Souls Day.